Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're excited to have a woman whose day job involves analyzing 32 million strong Latino electorate, voters that is, and thinking about what Democrats need to do to mobilize them in November. That's right. Stephanie Valencia worked for President Obama as a key liaison between the White House and the Latino community. She was intimately involved in the appointment of Justice Sonia Sotomayor to the Supreme Court. And we're going to get into the 2020 election with her in just a minute. But first, Scott, we've had a lot of news coming out of our state capitol this week, and not all of it has been that great. We're going to bring in um, our other politics guru, Guy Marzarati, who hey, is a... Uh, also covering this mess along with Katie Orr, who is working, covering it right covering now. Covering <laughs> it as we speak. Hey, everyone. Um, so, guys, let's start with the big news late last night. Um, we've known it's going to be bad, but it's real bad. The deficit is now projected in the state budget at $54 billion. To put that in context, when the governor you know, rolled out his January budget, we thought we'd have a $6 billion surplus. Yeah, what so, a difference a great. pandemic makes, right? <laughs> kind of makes you, you know, wonder where Jerry Brown's old charts with the deficits, the, the looming recession. Maybe the governor <laughs> will dust those off and bring them out when he does the budget Although, revise next what week. What about those Sutter cards? Are those coming back too? <laughs> yeah. yeah, the piggy but bank. I mean, and I think Nisa made this point. I don't even know if those charts would work, right? Because this is so different than most recessions. It Like, we just literally fell off a fiscal cliff all of a sudden. I mean, if you look back, it's different than 2003. It's different than 2009. It's even different than the way the Great Depression rolled out, right? If you look at unemployment. Um, and I know that some economists think that that could be a good thing in the sense that maybe we'll recover more quickly. But, I mean, Scott, you've been digging into this a little bit. What what's on the chopping block or, or do you think will be on the chopping block when the governor rolls out his May revise next week? Well, of course, the first thing everybody thinks about is schools, right? K through 12 schools, community colleges, they're going to be really uh, badly hit. Uh, they're going to, they're under Prop 98, they're going to reduce their minimum funding by $18 billion. So that, that's a huge hit. And a lot of school districts were already struggling. Um, it's interesting, though, you know, uh, Phil Ting, the assembly member from San Francisco, who chairs the budget committee in the assembly, he was, he did a conference call today. And he said, that, you know, this is less, he was a little more sanguine than I thought he'd be. He said, this is really less of a budget issue and more of a cash flow problem. He thinks yeah. that at least this year, Year and in the 2021 uh, budget that FEMA, you know, the federal government will step in and re reimburse a lot of these costs. He thinks it's really the, you know, the year after that, the 21-22 budget where, you know, it's really going to be tough because that federal money will presumably have gone away. 
Yeah, I have to say on like a personal note, like to your point about school, Scott, this is the first time I've been covering the budget for, you know, over a decade that Mike, I have a kid in public school and it is really frightening to think about. Um, but I think that is a good point. Um, and, and, I, and I also think that, you know, we're all sort of bracing for a return to what was so common for, for a while. Um, Guy, the other kind of big news that the Newsom administration maybe was hoping to slide a little bit away with this budget <laughs> bombshell um, was a contract finally released, this billion-dollar contract with a Chinese company uh, to deliver masks to the state. Um, he's been under a lot of fire for this. We found out that the company is shipping or giving back a quarter of a billion dollars because they just didn't get some of the masks. Um, you were just watching the governor respond to some questions about this. How is he positioning himself and, and what are the questions that we're going to still try to get answered around these deals, these huge deals? Right. I think this is the first and maybe only time we'd ever talk about a massive budget deficit as a like messaging decoy. Um, that <laughs> yeah. was largely the beginning of how the governor started his press conference today. But yeah, these you know these contracts raise a lot of questions, and the legislature has been pushing for more transparency around them. Um, I this week looked into like basically an alternative. What if at the beginning of all this, California instead of going out and pursuing these international contracts, instead enacted something like the Defense Production Act on a state level and kind of mandated that manufacturers in California produce masks and testing supplies, basically allowing the state to control these costs. And it really just sounds like there's not the manufacturing base in the state to do that. So as a result, you've seen the Newsom administration, largely in this vacuum of federal leadership, have to go out and secure contracts with, with some companies that haven't even been in the business of making this equipment for right, very long at like all. Right, this was like electric vehicle, I think, company Yeah, they make initially. buses for L.A., among other things. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, as the governor said, you know, we and everyone else were trying to get these masks, these PPEs. And so the old supply and demand kicks in, right? I mean, if you don't have uh, that much supply, you've got to crank up production. Uh, you know, like companies like BYD had never done it before. Uh, so obviously you're going to be paying top dollar. Actually, the price we paid for the masks wasn't that bad. Uh, right. It was like $3.30 <laughs> yeah. each. But, you know, you're getting hundreds of millions of these things. It adds up. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's really, we, I, I think it's important to say that like this happened in the absence of federal leadership. I mean, the Trump administration didn't just not respond. They said straight up, the president said, it's up to states, go do this yourselves. And then you had states, you know, competing with hospitals. You had people intercepting other supplies. And in a case or two, it was alleged that the feds did it, um, you know, have investigations of the company that we made this deal with because, or another company, excuse me. Um, but it does seem like a lot of this, I mean, we're going to continue asking these questions. This is taxpayer money. It's important. But it does seem a lot of of this was the result of just this sort of broader situation that the state was facing. Um, just a, a minute or two more before we go to our break. But Guy, first high profile election of the coronavirus era happening in just a few days down in um, northern L.A. County, southern Ventura County. You've been following that briefly. Just tell us what's at stake and, and how's it looking? Right. So this actually is an opportunity uh, for Republicans to take back a seat in the House uh, in California, something that hasn't happened, hard to believe, hasn't happened this century, a seat flipping from blue to red 
uh, in California. This is because it's an all-male special election north of L.A. So this is that seat that Katie Hill resigned from uh, late last year. And, you know, we've spent so much attention in the past tracking mail ballots. Shout out to Paul Mitchell and his work tracking that here. You can actually do that in real time because it is an all-male election. And I think the biggest concern for Democrats is potentially that those mail ballots don't get returned at a higher rate among the base voters that Democrats need. Um, the caveat is these two candidates, uh, Mike Garcia, the Republican, and Christy Smith, a Democratic state assemblywoman, are going to face off again in November. Um, so this is kind of there will be a rematch <laughs> no matter the result on Tuesday. Yeah, and we should say, too, that uh, as Democrats will point out, if they lose the seat, that, you know, it's a totally different electorate in a special election. They lost a lot of special elections in 2018 leading up to November of 2018 when they picked up 40 seats in the House. So, uh, you know, there will be people uh, hand-wringing if Democrats uh, lose this in addition to the cheers from Republicans. Uh, but, you know, I think we need to keep it in context. Well, it sort of feels like that for all of the I mean, I feel like every time there's a tiny election anywhere in the US, we, we all look at it with bated breath to see what it's going to do for Trump or what you know what, what it means. Um, and luckily, the woman about to join us has a lot of thoughts on all of that. Um, but I do think to your point, Scott, that this is um, kind of an extraordinary time. And it's still so uncertain what the, the fall is going to look like, right? So all right, we're going to keep a, a very close eye on that. We'll be back next week talking about CD25. Um, for now, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Latino pollster. Well, she's a Latina, but she pulls Latinos and Latinas. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie Valencia. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, here as always with Scott Schaefer. And today we are excited to have Stephanie Valencia with us from her home in Washington, D.C. She's co-founder and president of Equus Labs, which has pulled tens of thousands of Latinos in advance of the November election. Stephanie, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, just, did I say that right? Is it Equus? 
Equis, like the letter Equis. X. Oh, Equis, like those Equis. Oh, wow. Yes, okay. one X, not two. It's like the letter X. <laughs> we are the X factor in politics. <laughs> oh, glad we asked. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's a good jumping off point. So tell us about Equis and how you guys came about. Like, what? why, was, why is this necessary? Yeah, so I um, was President Obama's, one of his deputy Latino vote directors on the 2008 Obama campaign. And over the last 12 years now, um, have watched us uh, as Democrats and as progressives um, kind of trip all over ourselves and how we think about reaching Latino voters. I think fundamentally, we appreciate and understand the fact that Latinos are not a monolith, but it is a whole other thing to put that into practice. And knowing that 2020 would be uh, an election of our lifetimes where literally millions of Latinos lives are, are at stake, especially now with what's going on in the world and the disproportionate impact the coronavirus has had on our community and what the presidency of Donald Trump has meant to our community and to immigrants in our community. Um, we knew that, that there would be so much at stake and that we couldn't, you know, create the same mistakes and, and, and stumble uh, in the way that we have in the past. And so um, Carlos Odio, um, my co-founder and I started Equis with the core mission of creating a better understanding of the Latino electorate and investing in new and innovative approaches to reach and engage them. And so our core work is, is built around uh, a research project, a polling project that is almost a year old. We've collected over 30,000 interviews of Latino voters in 11 battleground states, all of the places in the Southwest you would think uh, Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, uh, and Nevada, um, but then also the emerging battleground state of Texas and the perennial battleground state of Florida, but then emerging battleground states or emerging states where there's a, a small but growing Latino population that will always be on the battleground map. And we know that, especially in 2020, the margin of victory will be very narrow, uh, but North Carolina, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And there are very small but mightily growing Latino populations in those states um, that could really be the difference uh, in 2020. And we should just say that sampling size of 30,000 is very large for a survey yeah. of this kind. So, uh, you know, and of course, the bigger it is, the more accurate it is, presumably. But you write in the New York Times this week that, you know, nearly 60% of eligible Latino voters in these battleground states will stay home if Democrats don't kind of act, get their act together. What, what does that mean? Like, what do Democrats have to do? And why are Latinos not motivated to vote? Well, part of the beauty of the scope and depth of this project is that we can really try to see trends, right? Because we have been in the field over the last year on a very regular basis, and because we have created such a depth of, of, of interviews, we can be able to create some dimensionality around who the electorate is. And I think that is our greatest message to uh, the Democratic Party or anybody, quite frankly, who wants to reach and engage Latino voters, is to, to know us, is to understand us, and to understand us is to understand the nuance that exists within our community. And, you know, we've been able to spot some very interesting trends over the course of the last year, one of which is the gender divide. Um, you know, there it is the largest gender divide that we have seen um, uh, since basically, you know, 2008 and in recent history. Um, and essentially what that means is that Latinas are very anti-Trump. 
Um, they are deeply anti-Trump, um, you know, uh, and we know the important role that Latinas play um, in our communities and in our families as, as matriarchs and as, as community builders. Um, but they're really critical of Trump, especially around his moral failings, his handling of the economy, his handling of the issue of immigration. Kids in cages is a very visceral and painful thing uh, for women in particular. And then um, you mentioned, you know, this notion of the ambivalent voter, which is what I also highlighted in the New York Times yesterday, which is a which is a more um, it's not I wouldn't confuse ambivalent with apathetic. Um, it is really somebody who uh, is on the sidelines because for many reasons they don't think that their vote matters. And so they've chosen not to participate either because they don't feel prepared enough to participate or because they don't think that their their vote will make a material difference on the election. Uh, or in their lives. And I think that that is what we fundamentally need to shift and change. And fundamentally what we saw in the primary, there are a lot of lessons we've learned, can learn from the Democratic primary uh, with Bernie Sanders that are absolutely replicable um, to the general election. First and foremost being um, having a strategy that is and having Latinos at the core part of your strategy uh, to win an election and communicating and investing the resources in order to do that through digital paid media and organizing is, is a very critical way um, to, to increase support and favorability and increase uh, motivation and excitement in this community about participating in the election in the first place. Well, I want to dig in on a couple of things you're talking about here. Um, one is that gender gap. And um, I think it ties to, I mean, like, like, sometimes I feel like when we talk about this stuff, of course, it matters the sort of broader picture. But we know that it's pretty likely that there's going to be a handful of these key states that could make the difference, right? And I think the, the path that Democrats often look at are the Michigans, Pennsylvanias, um, you know, Wisconsin is seen as a bellwether. I know the Southwest, there's a lot um, in the West, too. You mentioned those states, but talk about women, Latin, Latinas in specific, and what difference they could make in those swing states. Um, and, and like, what what is it that they need to hear to to get that motivation um, to really feel like their vote's going to matter? Well, so the challenge with Latinas, again, while they are deeply anti-Trump, they're so um, they are are are, are more anti-Trump than I think we have seen of most other groups and. Um, of any point in in the polling that we've done, they just continually, if they can possibly get any more anti-Trump, they are getting there. Um, but the challenge is, is they they face lower levels of participation and turnout than other um, other groups, uh, anywhere from 14 to 20 20 percent lower than um, uh, African American or white women. Um, and so that's troublesome because um, we know that if a Latina is um, more than just motivated and more than just watching what's happening, if she herself is excited, there's a chance that she is going to motivate and excite other people in her family and in her community. And creating that really important catalytic um, residual effect of an excited voter is something that we need to strive to, um, because I believe that in places like Arizona and Wisconsin and Michigan, where we see some of the highest levels of anti-Trumpness among Latina voters, unless they are excited to vote themselves and can mobilize and catalyze others with them, um, you know, we need every single vote that we can find in those states. And so we really ultimately have to depend on them to get there. So some of that will be um, real simple education about uh, the ballot, right? What is on the ballot? I think um, from research that we have seen, not our own research, but that others have done about why we see these lower rates of participation, it's often because women think they need to be more prepared then and have more information before they go and vote. They don't want to mess up. 
What we need to teach women is that they don't need a PhD in political science to go and cast a ballot. That that you know their their knowledge and their experience in in their families and in their communities is enough for them um, to go and do that. And I truly believe that if we can create a self-fulfilling prophecy about women being the difference makers and Latinas specifically being the difference makers in this election, that they will see themselves that way uh, as well. And so I think there are elements around simple ballot education, around confidence and around their role in the process of being these difference makers and ensuring that ultimately they are getting touches from campaigns and candidates about why they should vote for them. And, you know, we can't just kind of lay back and say, oh, anger at Donald Trump and the, you know, uh, the how much Latinas despise Donald Trump should be enough um, to drive them, to motivate them to want to vote. We have to give them something they want to vote for. You mentioned digital media, paid media, social media, organizing, get out the vote. Those are all important things. And you mentioned Bernie Sanders and what, a, you know, what he did right, especially after 2016 against Hillary Clinton. He learned a lot and changed what he did and did very well among Latinos in Nevada and California. You haven't mentioned Joe Biden, and I'm wondering yeah. how much it matters who is actually on the ticket. And of course, there's a lot of pressure on him and a lot of hope among many Democrats that he's going to put a woman of color on the ticket. Uh, what do you think about all that? How much does that matter compared to those other things you described? Well, look, I, looking back, if we look back at 2008 and where we are in this moment in time and where Barack Obama was at the end of a, a bloody primary with Hillary Clinton, um, you know, Barack Obama was down among Hispanic voters um, at this point in, in the general election, um, you know, in early June, late May, early June, as, as the primary was wrapping up. He went on um, in part because of the efforts that we invested in in organizing in digital and paid media to reach Latinos to get some of the highest levels of Latino support of any presidential candidate. Fast forward to 2016, Bernie Sanders actually lost the Latino vote to Hillary Clinton. And folks tend to forget that or that doesn't often get mentioned. Um, but he spent the next four years really investing in trying to reach and communicate with Latino voters. And as his campaign really ramped up, it was a core part of his campaign strategy and their path to victory. And again, they invested in digital and you know paid media, et cetera. And he also talked about a set of issues, whether it was healthcare, Medicare for all, um, education and, and community college, um, and immigration, um, those are all issues that really resonate and are critical pain points for the community. So that being said, you know, I think it's really important. I would love to see a historic um, woman of color uh, on the ticket. Uh, you know, uh, your home state senator seems to be on the short list, it seems. And I think she <laughs> would make a wonderful VP candidate along with other uh, women of color um, who have been rumored. But at the end of the day, um, I think that only gets you so far with voters. And at, you know, the work has to be put in to reach and engage them. And I think what's happening in the world today around coronavirus and knowing that black and brown voters are disproportionately affected um, by this virus and, and the residual impacts of the, the economic crisis from it, you know, Real is quickly. a critical pathway in to communicate to the community as well. Just real quick, because I'm sort of interested. I know you're a 10th generation New Mexico uh, person, New Mexican. Um, what do you New, New Mexican? New Mexican. <laughs> New Mexican. We say we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. <laughs> um, but I have to ask about the governor there, Michelle Lujan Grisham. She may not be on the short, short list, but I think she's in the, been mentioned in the top 10. What do you know about her and what kind of a VP might she be? 
Oh, Michelle Lujan Grisham is a tough cookie and one um, who would make a great vice presidential candidate. She'd make a great cabinet secretary. Um, she's made a great governor of New Mexico. I think her handling of, um, of uh, the crisis in New Mexico and her response, um, you know, has been very well received. And I think that the state has really respected her leadership. I think she has been one of the governors that has really um, managed to, uh, you know, really kind of, um, kind of coordinate a set of resources for the state and a set of economic resources to the state that I think, you know, uh, is, is an example to other states. And so I think, you know, she has been a very tough advocate for the Hispanic community. She's been a very tough advocate on the issue of immigration when she was in Congress. In fact, I remember uh, an image of her marching over to the Senate at one point to go walk into Mitch McConnell's office. Like she is a tough cookie. And one is that when, when she wants something done, um, she will put all of her might behind it. And so I would love to see her uh, on a short list and to also be considered for vice president. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we're talking with Democratic pollster Stephanie Valencia on KQED Public Radio. So, Stephanie, we were just talking about the New Mexico governor. Um, We mentioned that you're from there. But I just want to ask, because you guys have been in the field for so long and been doing so much, have you seen any big differences since this coronavirus uh, pandemic um, happened? I I should say you and I met in person in Las Vegas, probably one of the final weeks that people could meet in person (laughs) um, during that that debate. And, you know, it just feels like the ground has shifted so much politically. Um, I mean, is healthcare coming up as a bigger issue? have, have any of the trends that you've seen changed over the last couple months? Yeah, um, you know, I think um, we are starting to really see, uh, and we're in the field right now with our first um, survey uh, during this time, um, you know, and what we're starting to see as it comes back is one, we this will be the first poll that we have kind of coming out of the primary election where the, the field is consolidated. We know it's going to be Biden versus Trump. So we want to really understand what kind of how concerned should we be about those Latinos who are really supportive of Bernie Sanders? Will they will there be Bernie Sanders holdouts that we need to work really hard to bring over to Joe Biden? So that's the first thing we're going to be looking at. The second piece is is really um, what are the questions or the challenges that um, are facing this community in particular that might be unique to this community and how they are experiencing the impacts of the coronavirus and the economic impacts of the coronavirus. Um, I think there you know as we've seen through our polling consistently, the issue of health care, access to affordable health care, Medicare for all, has been an issue that has consistently come up for Latinos because um, they're one of the most uninsured populations in the country. And so um, ensuring that there's affordable access to quality health care has been a driving issue. In fact, ahead of the Texas primary, it was the primary issue um, that Latinos were talking about before uh, the Super Tuesday primary in Texas. And so that's another kind of piece is like how much are our issues, um, are, are the attitudes about issues like that going to shift and change because of the environment we're in? And then third is the economic impact of, of the coronavirus. I think we are going to see, um, as with the rest 
rest of the economy, but even more acutely in the Hispanic community, as well as probably the African-American community, real disproportionate long-term impacts um, of uh, the economic crisis in uh, Latino communities among Latino small businesses. We know Latinos and Latinas specifically are some of the largest numbers of, of small business owners. There are a large number of entrepreneurs and first-time business owners. And so surviving in this world and this economy now like is, is really going to have a long-term impact on the on the wealth attainment of many Latino families. And so how that colors their participation in um, this election cycle is something that we are going to be looking at. The last thing is we're going to look at is how the coronavirus is going to impact people's desire to vote. Beyond how it makes them feel about Donald Trump and how they think he's handled it is, you know, vote by mail and any number of other kind of ways of how people are going to be able to participate. How do we help, again, um, overcome some of those barriers around the process and partic of participation um, to ensure people feel safe and feel like they have access to um, their ballot. We're getting short on time, but I want to ask you, you worked for the Obama campaign. I think you were deputy director of outreach to Latino voters. Then you worked on the inside uh, with the uh, office of, I think, engagement. Um, and of course, in 2012, I think it was, Obama was called the deporter in chief. There were a lot of protests over immigration policy. What was that like for you being on the inside during that? And, and how is it different being you know, working on a campaign versus you know, working in government? Look, I will say that, um, you know, having spent time working on the Obama campaign and then again at the White House um, and uh, coming into the White House in 2009, where um, we were facing the, the greatest recession of our lifetime, maybe until this recession that we will soon um, understand. Um, you know, uh, immigration um, was not the first thing he was able to move at that time. And I think that uh, disappointed me. It disappointed a lot of uh, other folks um, in uh, who were fighting for, for immigration reform. So ultimately, he started a series of actions to try to address uh, immigration enforcement and the way that that was done. I think we learned a lot of very hard lessons about um, working within the constraints of government without actual congressional change. Um, and uh, that will be true for whoever the next Democratic president will be. Um, those barriers will still be there. Um, ultimately, I think there is a new kind of conversation about the, the, the nature of immigration in this country today um, than there has been over the last, uh, you know, prior years prior to us coming in in 2009. Um, but I think, um, you know, whether, you know, what, as President Obama used to say, I didn't inherit a magic wand as much as we used to like to think that because we elected him, um, that things were going to, to be a lot easier than they were. They proved to be a lot more challenging to really shift and change the way the federal government, including our law enforcement agencies, ICE and CBP, how they enforced immigration law. And they didn't always align with where the president's vision was. Um, and so I think that there will be a lot of lessons learned that, you know, Joe Biden will need to take as if he becomes the next Democratic, if the next president of the United States, about how we think about immigration enforcement and working with Congress to actually try to implement longer term immigration reform. Well, Stephanie, we really appreciate you being here. Uh, Stephanie Valencia is co-founder and president of Equis Labs, and we'll be checking in back with you over this year. Thank you all so much. Thank you. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. 
And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can always find me on Twitter at MLagos. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.